I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. Until fairly recently, trauma and PTSD were mostly linked to wars, abuse, or mental anguish. But trauma, or how we use the word now, seems to have become a more frequent condition in our pop culture. So has 21st century life become more traumatic? It wasn't until the 19th century that people first began to identify, late 19th century, the idea of psychological trauma leaving some sort of an impact. And I don't think it's because it didn't exist. I think it's because we were confused by it and perhaps somewhat ashamed of it. It's a curious phenomenon. And later, understanding why we're more resilient than we think. When something horrific happens to us, something really undesirable, something we didn't want to happen, we have the capacity to regroup and move on from there. The history of PTSD, trauma, and the mental flexibility of the human spirit. That's coming up on Life Examined. Chances are that during the course of a lifetime, we'll experience some kind of trauma. Whether it's physical or emotional, as a victim or as a witness, an unexpected horrific event is deeply unsettling, turning lives upside down. And as much as we wish to avoid these events from happening, they are very much part of human existence. Because at no time has mankind been immune to war, injury, or injustice. It's only been in the last 50 years that doctors thought that trauma could have a lasting impact, which is how we ended up with PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. So how do we make sense of the increased instances of trauma and PTSD, especially through pop culture, because we hear about it all the time? In his latest book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing the Way We Think About PTSD, author George Bonanno explores the history and nature of trauma and says we can withstand more than we think and that most of us can truly recover from terrible things. George Bonanno is professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology at Columbia University, and he joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Jonathan. Happy to be here. You know, one thing I, I, I loved reading about you is how you, you don't really have like a traditional PhD professor route, right? You didn't just go from an undergraduate degree, try to get as many citations as you can to get your PhD in tenure. Like you did some interesting offbeat stuff. Can, can you tell us about the earlier portion of your life? I mean, you were traveling, you were also helping people out with severe mental illness. Talk to me about kind of where you come from, because it, it took you to some pretty interesting work. Yeah, um, I'm happy to to tell you a little bit about that. Um, it was, I think, of a very atypical route into this profession for what one for which I am eternally grateful, um, because I think it opened my eyes to many things. So I left home when I was 17, um, not really to return, um, and traveled around the country. This is in the 70s. I hate to date myself, but this is in the 70s when it was very easy to hitchhike and I rode boxcars and did all kinds of things and, you know, lived an itinerant lifestyle for 10 years um, or so, living on farms and um, I was a sign painter, picked, picked fruit in the Pacific Northwest, et cetera, et cetera. And along the way, though, I, I seemed to have inadvertently found myself in positions where I was working with people. Um, and perhaps I had an aptitude for it. For I was a friend, I'm a friendly person. Perhaps that's one reason why these things happened. But I worked with various different populations, elderly people, um, uh, physically and mentally uh, disabled adults, um, different kinds of populations like that. And near the end of this run, I was working, I was going to the inpatient unit in the state hospital with a team of people to 
uh, identify those that we might take out of the hospital into the community. This was after there was legislation passed to make it more difficult to involuntarily hospitalize people. So this was a movement to bring people into the community. And I saw things, I think, that one can't even see anymore. You know, people in the back wards, thankfully there aren't so many people lost in the back wards anymore of, of mental hospitals. But I saw, you know, some very, very odd behavior. And um, strangely, I, I, I loved it. I found it fascinating, utterly fascinating. And that led me to decide to go to college for the first time at the age of 26. Um, and then I, doing that, I then realized that I love research and I love thinking about these ideas. And to my in, in, incredible surprise, I found I could write. So I began to write and do research. The first part of your story sounds like something out of a Jack Kerouac novel, I have to admit. <laughs> but but I, I was also just really struck about, you know, you must have felt something, you know, stirring in you, something that felt interested and empathetic towards those that we had pushed to the sidelines of society, right? Like the, the psychiatric institutions, probably particularly of that era, where just where people were discarded, there was nowhere else to put them. And then, of course, there was an attempt to bring them out. But obviously, something really resonated with you. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I think people were institutionalized against their will in those days, um, prior to that period, um, for being different or for being socially unacceptable. Um, you know, there were, there, were, there were people institutionalized from wealthy families for being gay, for unwed mothers, you know, from, um, or, or just people, just um, a person that nobody wanted anymore. And there were a lot of different reasons. So there was to some extent that there, there, were, there were misfits who were unfairly, you know, shuffled away. Um, I don't know if that, how, how strong that drove my interest. I think probably more than anything was just a sense of life's possibilities and the, uh, the idea that you could connect with other people and, and find, um, find something in them. And that, to me, was quite, uh, quite a motive. Yeah. Well, since then, I mean, you went on to get a PhD. You've written a number of books. You head up a lot of the clinical work at Columbia University. So, you know, you're, you're up in the highest reaches now of, of academia. But along the way, there were certain themes that, that you would come back to. I mean, you wrote a book about grief, but most recently about trauma. And, and one thing I, I read in your book that was really interesting is that a, another posting you had when you were getting your PhD was working with vets in the VA who were suffering from what we think of as PTSD. But you noticed that some of them didn't actually seem to have PTSD or to have the symptoms of it. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and things you began to notice about what we think of as trauma and, and how that started to turn the wheels in your own mind. Sure. So, well, at the time... Um, when I was working with veterans uh, in, the, in a VA hospital, that was in the early 1980s. And at that time, if somebody was struggling psychologically and they'd been in a war, it was almost automatically uh, categorized as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And as you said, a number of the veterans I worked with, I had noticed that they didn't seem to have any PTSD. They struggled from other types of problems, uh, the confusion with their identity, something I now call transition stress, where they, they'd left the military after some profound experiences and came back to their normal lives and they were struggling to, to, I, to figure out who they were anymore. And that's, that's not PTSD, that's something different. 
And at the time, I was beginning my career, and I've always been a little bit of a rebellious person. But even at that time, I thought, well, I'll just, I, I'm not going to, to rock the boat too much now. I, I would simply want to get my degree and finish. But I, I stored that information away. But yeah, it was apparent even then that PTSD is, I thought, dramatically overdiagnosed. Overdiagnosed, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what, what trauma is and where, where it shows up. I mean, the beginning part of your book, um, the end of trauma, you talk about it, the extent to which it appears or doesn't appear that much in world literature. Like, wh- where do we find it even referenced? Can you, like, give us a quick survey of, of how we understand the word and when it begins to appear? Yeah, you know, that, that, I was baffled to some extent when I first began to dis, to identify this. And I'm not the first person to notice this, but, you know, you mentioned, Jonathan, that you had worked with grief and bereavement. And if you go back in time, um, you find evidence, you find discussions of grief going way back to the, to the Greek uh, stories, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, particularly the Iliad of Homer, you find descriptions of soldiers openly weeping in grief, you know, and that they're fallen comrades. You know, this is not a um, not a, a new thing for the, for human beings. But if you go back in time and look for uh, any kind of mention of something like PTSD, a lasting psychological reaction to a a violent or life threatening event, there's no evidence of it. Really, throughout all the uh, the literature that's that's recorded since human beings have recorded literature. The first real mention um, occurred either in a in kind of an obscure reference in one of Shakespeare's plays or in the diaries of Samuel Pepys, who was a 17th century aristocrat. Um, and he, he mentions it in confusion. And in those diaries, he was not speaking publicly. He was speaking somewhat in code and leaving this for posterity. His diaries were very much private. So I, I, I puzzled over this for a long time, and it wasn't until the 19th century that the word that, that people first began to identify, late 19th century, the idea of psychological trauma, that le- leaving some sort of an impact. And I don't think it's because it didn't exist. I think it's because we were confused by it and perhaps somewhat ashamed of it. Um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. It's a curious phenomenon. Yeah, and, and it seems that we do begin to get some references more specifically to it. Is it around World War I when soldiers were returning? Is that right? Yeah, so World War I was when we first began to hear about shell shock. There was a tremendous ambivalence about shell shock, the, the first real kind of sense of war trauma. Um, but many soldiers were shot for cowardice or were, were labeled cowards in the field. You know, World War I was just a horrific war absolutely horrific, kind of pointless in a way, too. So there was a lot of, a lot of rebellion, a lot of um, malingering, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, soldiers running away. And so I think at that time, shell shock was not viewed uh, very favorably by the command at the time, even though it was officially designated. Um, then that kind of, you know, people returned from World War I, clearly, many soldiers clearly disturbed and to, to some extent broken. So it was kind of understood They'd been in the war, but there was still a lot of confusion and ambivalence about it. World War II, we saw a return to, to the notion of, of war trauma in a very vague kind of way. There was a tendency to blame people who developed trauma symptoms as somehow weaker or having some sort of inner failings, very unfairly, I would say, to blame them. 
And then again, it quieted after the war. And it, the, 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 the tide really turned with the Vietnam War in the United States, with the, the Vietnam War, the United States involvement in the Vietnam War, I should say. Because at that time, then, th- that was another one of the a very difficult war, um, and, and a complicated war because it was unpopular, there were lots of protests, and people began to return from that war in, with a lot of psychological problems. And that led the, the mental health community to, to really gather its sort of forces to, to get something, something officially recognized that would allow them to treat war trauma. And that, that's when, finally, in 1980, the idea of PTSD, the diagnosis, was incorporated into the sort of psychiatric um, nomenclature uh, and officially recognized. So that was 1980. Wow. So by the 1980s, how did the psychological community decide to define trauma? And, and I think this is really important in our conversation because... The term is just used so loosely and wildly everywhere. Even like ever actually, since I read your book, I've actually been a little bit more reticent to start using the word trauma in everyday life. And you know, my clients they bring it into the therapy room as well. But let's just talk about how the best we can define it after all of those years of trying to think about what it is. Yeah, that that's a great question. And um, you know, I mean, initially. The idea of trauma was, was if I paraphrase it, um, it was something outside the realm of normal human experience, usually involved violence or the threat to, your, to life, the threat to physical integrity, something that, you, that a person experienced trauma when something was, there was an idea that something was going to harm them deeply and, and perhaps fatally. You know, and so it activates those kind of events, an automobile accident, you know, a, a serious physical injury, uh, assault, uh, you know, a natural disaster. Those things um, activate in us something very primitive, a phylogenetically ancient response, you know, this sense of I'm in really big trouble here. This is danger and I'm going to get hurt. And that activates a, an enormous threat response. Um, a primordial threat response, if if I can use that term. Mm. That's how it was originally conceptualized. The traumatic event was an event like that. Um, And gradually, because people began to argue, you know, fairly that, you know, well, mostly clinicians actually, or people in the PTSD field after 1980 began to argue that, well, you know, I see people who seem to have PTSD, but they don't fit this rigid diagnosis. So there was a push for a more subjective diagnosis. If, if you sense that, well, people can be traumatized by different things, so it's all really in the subjective, uh, the sense of what I feel is, tra- is, tra- is trauma. So that, that's a kind of a Pandora's box, though, because once you open that box, you can't put it back. And we now have moved to a kind of a sense that almost anything can be a trauma. That's so interesting. Right. I mean, it's like a dog barked at me. And if I have the symptoms of PTSD, then I now have the diagnosis, which is interesting. But and you also talk about how in the DSM, which is kind of, you know, the Bible for for mental health disorders, like how how PTSD, when you look at all the cluster of symptoms and how diverse they can be, it could be like almost anything, right? I mean, it's it's like wildly like wide open, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of of psychiatric diagnoses, and I don't know if that that's apparent in the book, but I think that you know, psychiatric diagnoses are 
societal constructs. They're designed for very specific purposes to determine whether somebody can be treated, whether it can be paid for, you know, whether insurance can pay for it, whether what category to put them in to decide what the treatment might be. And those are societal purposes. It, it, and it, 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 these disorders, though, kind of masquerade because of the medical approach to disorders. They masquerade as scientific constructs, which they are not. They don't have a scientific or even a biological basis. So what happens is diagnoses are determined by committee. And, you know, I'm from New York, and I know that New York is overrepresented on these committees and the, the New Yorkers. And the, the New Yorkers are also... Uh, assertive and loud, and so New Yorkers' viewpoints are overrepresented on these committees. Um, that's just, a, I suppose, an, an independent little factoid there. Um, but um, the the diagnoses are determined by this by by consensus. By actually, sometimes it's not even consensus. Sometimes it's compromise. And what happens is we get diagnoses that are less than ideal. They're overly complicated. In fact, one of my former students. Isaac Gallitzer Levy, I'm very proud of him for having done this. He did a simple analysis of the number of possible symptom combinations that, that could happen with the PTSD diagnosis. And he ended up with 636,136. Wow. That many different cases, completely independently different cases, could all have the same PTSD diagnosis. Mm. How do you make sense of this? And... And then do you actually think there are some true symptoms that we could point to that, that symbolize being exposed to serious trauma? Oh, I, I think that I think serious trauma is real. I, I want to make sure I clarify that. And I think it does happen with a you know, kind of predictable frequency, I would say, you know, 5, 10 percent. You know, the, and the symptoms are are logical and I think they are they make sense. One, one of the categories of symptoms is Intrusive thoughts, things that pop in your mind un, that you don't want in your mind, disturbing, mm. unbidden, intrusive thoughts, and this might include nightmares. Another is trying to push those away and you know get rid of those and avoid them and 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 avoid people and places and things that remind you of of the event. And then another category is um, what's called hyperarousal. It comes in various different names, but it's, a, it's the idea that you're on edge and you're alert and you can't turn that off. All those, those are three categories of symptoms and, and there, there are too many instances in the, in the DSM, but those type of reactions are normative. Um, they, are, they, are, they are legitimate, but here's the big thing, Jonathan, here's the big difference. When people are exposed to violent and life-threatening events that are they're seriously disturbed by an event and they were in danger, it's very common to have those reactions for at least a couple days, sometimes a week or two. It's, it's common to have nightmares. It's common to have intrusive thoughts, to be on edge and a little alert, overly alert and, and uneasy. That's a very common reaction. I would say probably... There's not a real hard, fast number, but I would say about at least 85, 90% of the people exposed to violent, life-threatening events have those reactions. But the crucial point is they don't last. They usually last, as I said, a couple days, sometimes a week or two at the most, sometimes a little longer. For a small subset of people, they don't go away. And those are the people that develop PTSD. So the symptoms that people experience early on, if we can even call them symptoms, are common 
And when they don't go away, then we get in the realm of PTSD. When they, when they don't go away, say, a month later, and the person is still struggling with these reactions, and it's impeding their ability to live their life, then we begin to think, okay, this person may have PTSD. But before then, it's, 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 it's a completely normal response. And this is, I think, probably one of the most important theses in your book is exactly what you're getting to. And I, I want to hear about how you landed on this. I mean, you, you start the book with a really fascinating story of somebody who would um, you know, potentially become a student of yours, but you also did a very important study around 9-11. But I'll let you kind of carry on here with when you began to kind of piece this together and move beyond, I think, a very common cultural perception that if someone is exposed to trauma in the way you've described it, you're bound to get PTSD, like for years. It's going to be what we see in, in TV shows or movies or what we read about. So how did you begin to kind of come up with this idea? Well, it, it happened initially in the field of grief and bereavement, actually, quite by accident. I, had, was, um, I got my PhD in 1991, and I was doing a lot of experimental work, um, a lot of um, work I felt, I felt was getting me a little bit of field from what I was really interested in. I was lost in the experimental design and, you know, figuring out the right stimuli. And I thought I need to broaden it a bit and get back to what I, what I really feel like I'm meant to do. And I was offered a position in San Francisco running a bereavement study. It was well-funded and it, was, it would have been a good position, except I had, knew nothing about bereavement. And in fact, I was not even interested in it at all. I thought, why would I want to study bereavement? Mm. Um, but I looked into the literature. For, first of all, I had just gotten married in San Francisco. It was a lovely city. And I thought, well, this would be a good place to start my life, my new married life with my wife. Um, but I looked into the literature on bereavement, and that's where my interest got piqued because I realized that the literature seemed to me woefully out of date. No pun intended, it was a sad literature. Um, it seemed like it was almost a 19th century literature. Actually, I should say pun intended. Very bad pun, but pun intended. Um, it was a sad literature, and it, it really seemed like it needed to be updated, that the, 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 the ideas in that literature were that everybody who loses a loved one will be crippled by grief for a long time, and, they all, and that bereaved people all need clinical help. They need therapists. They need intervention. That was a dominant assumption. So th this seemed completely um, sort of upside down to me, um, coming from a, you know, outside of that field. And I had been trained in experimental methodology and you know, uh, in a research tradition. So I began to do research studies that had never been done before with bereavement um, in San Francisco. And immediately we began to see that most people were doing just fine. They were resilient. They, they were pained by the loss. They were struggling, especially initially. They had, you know, a lot of uh, painful emotions and sadness and, um, you know, life seemed meaningless for a very short time. Um, but most people, the majority seemed to move on with their lives, you know, hold it, it was kind of deal with it as best they could and then move on with their lives and live happy, healthy lives. They weren't just painfully trudging along. They, were, they had capacity for joy. They could laugh. We did studies early on showing that most bereaved people were able to laugh genuinely when we interviewed them about their loss. They would laugh telling stories or remembering something positive and sweet, you know. Um, so we began to see that, 
that most people are resilient. And then eventually, after we did a number of studies like this with grief, and it became clear that we, we, you know, we replicated this, we found it numerous times, I began to expand to 9-11 and to, to trauma. I had moved to New York by that time just before 9-11 happened. So we did research on 9-11. We did research on sexual assault. We did research on natural disasters, etc. And we saw the same thing. So we began to see uh, in all of these different um, arenas that most people are going to be okay. Most people will be okay within a short time, with less than a month. You know, most people will, people will struggle, but they'll move on. So one way or another, I ended up doing this and, and, and happened to, to make these connections because I was coming out of nowhere and, and, and saw them. So why do you think it is that the, the opposing narrative, the original narrative that's kind of counter to yours, has been the one that seems to have won out, that there is more suffering, that there is more trauma, that there is more grief than there actually is in reality? Like, why is that a better answer that a lot of us still cling to? Oh, that's a great question. The, the best I can do to answer that is for initially, I think it began in the professional world. You know, for grief, it was because people in, who were in therapy may have had loss experiences. And that was a, either what was driving their being in therapy or that was um, a handy explanation for symptoms that couldn't otherwise be explained. That happened in the 19th century, way back with Freud and Freud's followers. Um, you know, and so that that literature then has a way of kind of commanding the narrative, the, the professional literature. With trauma, uh, the, somewhat the same thing happened. You know, uh, but I think there's an added piece with trauma. Why trauma? The, the narrative that that we're all traumatized has gained so much traction, because we're wired for threat. We're wired for danger. You know, we're we're also wired to be flexible and to do all kinds of other things. Our brains are highly flexible and adaptive. But there are certain structures in our brain, certain brain uh, processes that, that are quite ancient phylogenetically. And they go back through the evolutionary, uh, through our evolutionary development, that when we are confronted with something that seems threatening, that seems dangerous, it commands our attention. And usually we, that's usually a pretty crude kind of process where, you know, we're kind of wired to, to pick these things up fast and quick to avoid, to avoid the danger. So we have this kind of predisposition to pay attention when something really bad is happening. You combine that with the fact that now PTSD in 1980 becomes a diagnosis and suddenly lots of literature begins to appear uh, completely understandably. The literature begins to appear on these horrible things that can happen to people and these horrible reactions, these really difficult PTSD reactions that people can have. So not only can we be hurt, maimed, injured, we can also be psychologically damaged. And this idea draws our attention. This idea is kind of hard to ignore. Um, and then you have more and more stories in the media and then the in throw in the internet into this mix, which we now have, the, 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 the internet that seems to dominate our lives. And you have point and click, uh, you have uh, clickbait, you have you know counting clicks for advertising. All these, these, um, these behaviors built around getting somebody to look at something and click on it. And basically, if it's got a trauma content, if it's about violent and life-threatening events, it's about danger and PTSD, it'll get clicks. It'll get people looking at it. And you have this kind of uh, momentum to all of this where, where basically the world seems scarier and scarier and scarier. 
and more dangerous and more likely to harm us, to damage us psychologically. And the momentum of that, I think, has taken on a life of its own. On top of that, there's even a, there, there's more to it, I think, and I'm completely basically just speculating about most of this, is that we also, there's a reward in it. There's a kind of a sense that um, this happened to me and therefore I have these difficulties because this thing happened to me. This event happened to me. Now, it sounds a little bit like I'm, I'm, I'm blaming people, but to some extent I am. I think that we have, I'll go out on a limb and say that, I think we, we, we far too easily jump at the excuse that we are traumatized by something and we can't function. Now, I think when I say that, I mean this goes for things that we wouldn't necessarily consider traumatic events. When somebody's been seriously traumatized by a violent or life-threatening event, they are traumatized. If they're, tra- if they're having these trauma symptoms after a period of time, they are traumatized and they deserve our concern and, and they deserve whatever help they can get. But I think those people are actually being misserved by this sort of global idea that everything is traumatic because it puts them in the same category as somebody who, say, had, didn't get a, a, the grade they wanted or, or um, you know, missed the bus when they were running to catch a meeting or something of that nature. You know, so it's, it's a kind of a, a, a global sense now that, that, that's come out of this, um, the momentum of, of, of danger in the world. Mm. No, I think that's all really well explained. And, and it makes me wonder that, you know, does this exist across all different types of trauma? I mean, one that comes to mind that I think it kind of all makes our stomach turn and, and elicits so much anger is sexual trauma. You know, um, the, the staggering rates of hearing the amount that women have been exposed to sexual trauma, or of course, we hear the stories coming out of the church, the Catholic church. And do those studies kind of hold up to similar to the 9-11 studies that in fact, those that are exposed to those horrific events, most of them will long-term be psychologically healthy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to, going to say yes, that, that sexual trauma, let's say sexual assault or violent sexual assault or, or incest or, um, you know, whatever other category of, of sexual harm you can think of, I, I will say that most people are resilient to those as well. It doesn't mean that they, they're, they weren't harmed in some way. It doesn't mean that they didn't suffer, but they're capable of moving on with their lives and living healthy lives. Now, that idea is not a popular idea, and I've gotten a lot of grief for saying that. Um, but the thing is, Jonathan, that the research on sexual assault is some of the weakest research in the entire um, world of mental health. And I don't know exactly why that is. I think in part it's because sexual assault is so stigmatized. You know, most cultures, um, many cultures don't even acknowledge sexual assault. And some cultures, um, um, even many cultures, blame the victim, readily blame the victim. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, it's, it's somehow somebody's fault if they were sexually assaulted. They were, they were being provocative or revealed too much skin or, you know, all these common stories. Somehow, somehow consented implicitly, you know, all these different things we all know all too well. So there's a lot of stigma built around it. But for reasons I'm not fully, fully understanding of, the research is very poor, too, that, that there, the studies that should be done have really not been done. Mm. And by that, I mean, you know, when, when sexual assaults happen, then, then follow people over time and see, see how it transpires. Most of what we know comes from asking people about the past and relying on the, the frailty of our memories. Our memories are not very good, typically. 
So the, the studies that have been conducted, though, and a few have been conducted, good studies, have clearly shown that most people who have been sexually assaulted are basically doing okay. If you're just joining us, my guest is George Bonanno, professor at Columbia University and the author of The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard George Bonanno, clinical psychologist and author of The End of Trauma, say that we all have the capacity to withstand traumatic events without lasting impacts. But is resilience something we're all capable of? Why do some develop long-term PTSD? Let's dive back in. Well, let's now pivot and talk about why it is that, in fact, so many people recover in just normal and healthy ways from traumatic events. And the word that, that you use and that we, we hear commonly is this idea of resilience, that perhaps humans are just more resilient than we might have thought. But I'll let you jump in here now and talk about, you know, why is it that, that so many of us seem to, you know, emerge out of a traumatic experience unscathed? Well, the, this is a, something I've puzzled over for a long time. So the, the, the short history of it is initially we began to identify the various factors that, that might tell us who would be resilient and who not as in a way to understand it. You know, this was a, a way we would learn to understand it. But over time, and there was an idea early on that you know, there were sort of these key factors, that resilient people have three or four or five of these sort of key traits that, that allow them to, to function well. Um, but over time, we began to realize that there were so many different factors that were coming into play. You know, last time, at the time I wrote the book, The, the End of Trauma, the, I counted at least 50 different factors that had been somehow associated with resilience. And the number just keeps increasing. But that led to the idea gradually that it's not having these key traits that makes us resilient. It's being flexible. It's, be, it's, it's the capacity or the ability to uh, respond uniquely to different events, to kind of work out what's happening to us and then what we need to do to get past it. And this is actually, I argue, I would argue, and I do argue that this is actually kind of a characteristic of the way the human mind works. Um, and there, there's abundant evidence for that. Um, you know, and it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a capacity to adapt to uncertainty, to adapt to something new that happens to us without a script, in a sense. Um, and, you know, you know, we have the most flexible brains in the animal kingdom. We have more cortical neurons. We have a, we have a long, long period of child development. We're not, our brains are not fully um, cooked. Or they're not fully done until we're about 25. That's a long period in the animal world. That's, a, that's probably the longest um, for development, then all that development gives us all that development, all those cortical neurons gives us an enormous capacity to change and adapt. So we have this capacity. And when something horrific happens to us, something really undesirable, something we didn't want to happen, we have the capacity to regroup, you know, and take it from there and move on from there. That's a very much a human capacity. And I think I'm increasingly convinced that this is how people find their way to resilience. This is why so many people are resilient. 
so I'd love if you can give us an example of, of this idea of, of flexibility, the flexible mind. Like um, imagine somebody who has been through a horrific event and how it is that they would process that using this idea of flexibility to ultimately have a healthy outcome. Like what does that look like? Okay, so um, let, let me think of an example. I can give you an example of, say, this is a story I heard recently from somebody I know who was on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean, um, which the, the trip sounded like it was going to be fun. They, they, a small group of guys went on a little schooner from um, somewhere up the East Coast, mid, mid, midway up the East Coast to New York. That was their, their goal, to sail. And they cut across a fairly large swatch of ocean at night and got caught in a horrific storm. They realized that none of them actually knew that much about sailing, at least not enough to navigate a, a schooner uh, in a storm. And this one person who told me this story thought for sure they were going to die. They couldn't see, you know, the, the, the boom, which I think is the correct word for this large sail, was sweeping across and slamming into people and the boat was rocking to and fro and raining and uh, they really thought they were maybe done for. That person began to have um, nightmares and kind of mild, you know, so these kind of intrusive thoughts and very uneasy thought, you know, for, for a few days, a week or two afterwards. So what happens when we're flexible, well, what happens normally initially is we, we get very upset. It's quite, quite um, common to be very upset by something like this. We can't stop thinking about it. We're uneasy. We feel like the world has been turned upside down. But then at some point, when we sort of get into this natural flexibility of ours, we begin to ask ourselves, so what, what happened to me? Why am I having these reactions? What is happening here? What's going on? And, you know, we can answer ourselves. We ask ourselves these questions kind of in our mind, kind of in, not really consciously, almost unconsciously, almost automatically, because we've been doing this since we were kids. We learn since we're children to um, to kind of differentiate different situations, to ask ourselves, how does one behave here? And how does one behave here? And what, what's happening in this situation? And we learn to adapt ourselves. So now we're, say, having these nightmares and having some intrusive thoughts. And we ask ourselves, you know, why, why am I having these thoughts? What's going on? Am, am I traumatized? Is it something else? And we then decide uh, how we should respond to this. We kind of come up with a... Um, um, uh, a little bit of a sense of what we need to do, what we can try to do, what might help. And we try something. We behave in some way. And it, it, at a certain point, this kicks in, I think, when we've just, you know, we reach a point where, okay, we're having these reactions and we don't want to have them anymore, the realization. That's really the first step in this flexibility process where we take, a, take an assessment of really the context. What, what's the situation I find myself in? We've now come to that. Right. I'm tired of being of not sleeping well. I'm tired of being worried about this. What's going on here? When we do that, we come up with some answers. Okay, I'm having these thoughts I don't want to have. I was on a boat and I should have been on this boat. It was a dumb thing to do and I, I, I could have died. Okay, so I don't want to think about that anymore. I don't want to feel that thought anymore. What can I do? We move into the second set phase of this process, which we call repertoire where we ask ourselves another question, not what can I do, but then what am I able to do? 
what is my in my repertoire? What kind of things do I have at my disposal? What kind of behaviors? I could try to, you know, talk to somebody about this. I could try to just force it out of my mind. I could distract myself. I could dive into my job. I could, um, you know, seek out some friends just to be with friends or a loved one. Um, I could try to problem solve it and figure out how it works. Any number of possibilities. And then we try something. We actually behave. We do something kind of in a strategic way. And then the third phase, quite uh, really simply, is we then ask ourselves if it's working. We collect evidence in a sense. We call this the feedback stage. And we basically try to find out if it's working. And this, I think, is actually a crucial uh, a crucial step in this sequence because sometimes people, if they're unsuccessful, will will have given up. They'll think, "Well, I I can't stop this thing from happening. It seems to be happening on its own. I can't I can't do anything about it." That's typically because the first thing we tried didn't work. But if we if we um, realize that this is the, kind of the way human beings cope, is it through trial and error? Let's try something else. Okay, I tried just simply not thinking about it. That didn't work. Let me try talking to a friend about this and just sort of, you know, airing it with a friend, which can be very helpful sometimes. Say we try that. That doesn't work. Let me try something else. Mm-hmm. Let me try, um, you know, reading about it. Maybe I can learn about it. Or let me try, um, you know, re- rethinking it, reframing it. Okay, I was on this boat. I should have been on this boat, but, you know, it happened. I won't do that thing like that again. I'll be a little more careful again. And, you know, it was a... I was tossed about in an ocean. I could have drowned. That's pretty scary. So how I'm reacting is not surprising, you know, and I will just be more careful, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's a kind of reframing we can do. So the, the, the key part of all of this is basically to kind of take a read of what's happening, figure out what we're able to do that might help, try it, and then, you know, take, take the evidence and correct it if we need to and try something else if we need to. That's a, kind of a simple process, but it's actually from what our research has shown, it's how people do it. That's interesting. So if that is actually the common way that humans almost naturally deal with a response to trauma, I mean, it does make me wonder, why is it that 5% really do get stuck with symptoms that can last for years or lifetimes? Like, what, what's the difference between these two people? Well, what we've, we're finding in our research, and you know, as a scientist, I consider myself a scientist more than almost anything else. You know, I'm 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 still collecting data in a way. But what we've seen so far, the jury's still out in a sense. But what we've seen so far is that the people that tend to struggle more tend to have deficits in one of one of these abilities or another. You know, I, I use the term flexibility as a kind of a, a global term, but it's really this cluster of abilities, the ability to read the context, the ability to kind of take stock of what's happening. That's one ability, the ability to have uh, different kinds of strategies at our disposal. People have larger or smaller repertoires. And then the ability to um, take stock after we've tried something to pay attention to the feedback and try again, the trial and error part. When we found that people have deficits in some of those areas, and those are the people that struggle more. That's at least what we see so far. Do you think that there could be any any underlying reasons? I mean, a, a genetic component to any of this? Um, things that have to do? Yeah, I mean, does that? do you think that factors in? Yeah, there is a genetic component. Um, we've actually shown this recently. Um, there is a, but the thing about genetic components, the thing about genes, like most everything else, um, is that it only explains a little bit of it. 
um, that the people may have a genetic disposition to be more flexible or more resilient, um, but that's not going to, to explain the whole story, not at all. So um, it, it, there are life experiences as well, and some of our life experiences may make us less flexible or more flexible. Your book also paints a really interesting picture because I think we also think of now of you know, growing up in poverty as a trauma or, or maybe going through a divorce as a child as a trauma or like all these different things. And you've also shown that in many, many cases, children that even grew up, you know, not going to the best schools or in neighborhoods that we think of or just don't have the resources, many appear to be very psychologically healthy moving forward, right? Yes, that's, that's very much true. And that's actually been shown for, God, 40 or 50 years now by developmental researchers. It's not true across the board, of course. And poverty does take its toll. You know, there's, um, just to be clear about that, there there, there's pretty good research that children growing up with who are who who don't have adequate resources in the home or or parents around because the parents are too busy working. So it's children of single mothers below the poverty level, for example, tend to have less cortical sickness as early as one year of age, meaning that their brains are just not developing sufficiently because they don't have somebody talking with them and nurturing them. There's just no time. So there is that very much reality to it, but. For the most part, though, growing up in poverty and in, in, in untoward situations is harmful. It, it takes away from the kind of resources that we could have, and it does make life harder. But it doesn't damn us to a life of dysfunction necessarily. And there are many, many children who survive poverty and grow up to be healthy, healthy, um, uh, well-adjusted adults. Very yeah. much so, yeah. To me, this also has a lot to do with of how we think of others and how we think of ourselves. And let me see if I can explain this. Like, because the the conversation and the dialogue around PTSD is everywhere around us, I think when we know someone who has been through something horrific, we then also begin to project on them this diagnosis, like, oh my God, something's got to be really wrong with them. And there'll probably be, there'll probably be something wrong with them for a really long time, considering we went through that, right? It's a, it's a story we begin to tell about them, but we would also do it to ourselves. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the interview that if something horrible has happened to me, I think of myself as almost damaged goods moving forward. And to me, I think your book does something really important to that narrative, which says that just because this happens to you doesn't mean you are going to be stuck in a life of PTSD or trauma moving forward. Your life may be completely healthy once you get through that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's absolutely true. PTSD or and most of the things we consider mental disorders are not written on your soul. They're not carved in, in your body like some Franz Kafka invention. Um, they are basically states that uh, they're, they're difficult states and painful states, but they're, but they're states typically that people can and do recover from. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's something else related to that, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention yeah. that the, the idea, I think the word trauma uh, to describe events is a, is a misnomer and has caused a lot of harm. So in my own research and all my writing now, I use the phrase potentially traumatic event or mm. the acronym PTE for potentially traumatic event. And it, I, I had to get, get out of the habit of using the word trauma myself because it's so ingrained in our culture. Um, but I forced myself to use potential trauma, potentially traumatic event, because that's what these events are. 
horrific events are potentially traumatic. They don't traumatize everybody. And the, the reason that's important, both it's important because when we go through a potentially traumatic event, we it, the, the idea that it's a trauma already fixes us kind of in a, in a we've got already one strike against us because we've been through a quote unquote trauma. But if we've been through a potentially traumatic event, it means we we have some say in how it goes. But even more importantly, when we think about our past, and this I, I see this everywhere now, that most people are exposed to violent and life-threatening events at least once and often several times in the course of their lives. Automobile accidents, natural disasters, serious injuries. These are, not, these are horrible events, but they are not uncommon. So most people experience these kinds of events. Personally, I've had, God, so many I can't even count them anymore mostly being a, you know, a kind of a living my life a little bit more recklessly when I was young. But those events, if we think of those as, trauma, as traumas, as traumatic events, which they are often labeled as, that gives us already the idea that we've got something wrong, something has been broken and harmed inside us. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so common these days and why, why people tend to misunderstand it. If you've been through something that's already that's widely considered a trauma, then you're likely to have been hurt, harmed by it, and maybe in a permanent way. Um, but if you've been through something that's a potential trauma, you have you always have some control over it. Yeah, it really does make me think that you know your research really does highlight something that is is doesn't seem to get a lot of airtime, which simply is resiliency that there are parts of us that can go on, that are strong, you know? And I, do you feel like, in a sense, that it's kind of amazing for you to reflect upon that now in this phase of your life, that, and that these are really important things for us to sit with, even if they go against the media narratives of who we think we are? Um, absolutely. And, and the funny thing about it is, though, there's been, this has waxed and waned over time. I've been doing this research now for over 30 years, and what I've seen is that initially the work we did on resilience was completely ignored basically by the profession. And then gradually, because we kept finding and publishing the same research, that idea began to take some track, get some traction. Then after 9-11, the world was watching. The world was sort of asking about trauma really globally. You know, what is this, what's going to happen when an entire um, with, you know, an enormous um, building in, an, in, a, in a highly populated city is brought down like this. What will happen? And at that time, there was a, a, a real increase in interest in resilience. And, and I had sort of prematurely congratulated myself and thought, okay, great, job done, what's next? You know, the, the, we, we've now sort of shown the world that people are resilient, you know, the research is paying off. And then without realizing it, I don't know, I, I didn't see it happening until it was already happened, that things shifted back. And we see now a tremendous emph emphasis on trauma again and, and a, mis a discounting or dismissal of the idea of resilience. And that's, that snuck back in the picture, in a sense, um, in a really interesting way. And I don't have a great explanation for that. Yeah, and it makes me just think as we have this conversation, it's almost not even resilience. It's just who we are. It's just part of being human, right? It's like the resilience is, it's a wonderful story to tell, but what you're saying is like, hey, no, no. Within you is the capacity to heal because that's what we've always done. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I, I think that's very well said. It's been wonderful to be joined by George Bonanno, professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University, and he's the author of the book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD. George, really, really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. And as always, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook group. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. This is Life Examined on KCRW. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Take care.